series covering the Old Testament, and uh, again, the, the goal is not to, uh, to kind of delve into maybe your, your favorite Old Testament story and find out about what happened and the significance of that as it relates to the rest of scriptures. The goal is really to have this big picture overview and uh, not spend too long in any one place and uh, just keep moving right along. And you'll definitely notice that this morning. You're going to um, hear some big names mentioned this morning in terms of the Old Testament and really not going to treat them in too much detail. We're just going to move right along and try to show how they fit into uh, the bigger picture. So last week, you might remember that the, we left the, uh, the Israelites. They had gathered right on the edge of the land of Canaan. And that was the land that was promised to them. And uh, you might remember that they'd spent all of those years wandering in the wilderness under the leadership of Moses. And we saw that through the book of Numbers. And then in the book of Deuteronomy, how Moses gave his final, you know, kind of proclamation or his final words to the Israelites as they were camped at the edge of the land that had been promised to them, the land of Canaan. And he gave them the kind of their kind of pep talk, their reminder before they were about to go into the land and to take it. And the people, you know, heard what Moses said and they recommitted themselves um, in this kind of solemn way to what God was doing with them. And so that's, that's where we left off. We left off looking at the law last week, the first five books of the Old Testament, the opening section. And this week we're going to look at the prophets, which is the second major section of the Old Testament, but interestingly, it also incorporates a lot of the books that we would consider to be history, and so this morning is going to be a lot of the history of the Old Testament from the time that they enter into the Promised Land, and we're also going to look at how the prophets fit into and weave together with that history, because really, you uh, need to look at both together to try to, to make sense of all of it, so that's our goal. So, uh, so let's pray, and then uh, we'll jump right in at looking at how the people entered into the land of Canaan. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you so much for everything it reveals about who you are. And God, we just um, look to you this morning to teach us through your word more about who you are. And uh, I pray that we'd be able, God, to just learn more about what it is to live in relationship with you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So the prophets is... uh, the prophets is quite a daunting task because there's so much packed in there. And uh, interestingly, when you look at the, when you think about the prophets, I know for for us the way our English Bibles are divided up in the Old Testament, we tend to think of prophets in terms of like maybe Jeremiah or Ezekiel or one of those kind of the bigger prophets, one of those larger books. But there's a lot of other prophets in the Old Testament. And before we, before we really get into the section that deals with them, we, we just need to catch the history of Israel up a little bit and we need to, to move it forward a little bit and we need to get to the, to the point in time whenever they have a monarchy because that's when the prophets really start to speak up a little bit more. So let's, uh, let's, let's jump into that. Let's get the people into the land and then we'll see how they kind of settle the land and, uh, and, and form the monarchy. So Joshua was raised up. Uh, by Moses and by God to lead the people into the promised land of Canaan. And so I don't know how you, how you think about them entering the land of Canaan. I know when I was growing up hearing stories about this in uh, Sunday school, to me they went in and they had that victory at Jericho that you might be familiar with, and then boom, it was done. Like they have the whole land. Does anybody else 
think that or heard that, got that impression? Okay. Really, the occupation of the land took a period of time, and it wasn't as if they walked in and Jericho fell and that was it. Jericho was really important because what it did is it told the people in the land that, that this was for real, and it told the Israelites that this was for real. And you have a sense in which God goes ahead of the people as they settle the land. But really, there were at least three major stages in how they conquered and how they settled the land. There was that initial kind of central campaign that they went in and took kind of the middle part. And then they had a northern campaign and then a southern campaign. And each tribal area was settled according to the divisions that were actually worked out as part of the law. So whenever you're reading through you know, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you'll see that the, the land is actually divided up pretty carefully. And in the book of Joshua, it's the story of them going in and settling tribal group by tribal group. And the tribes would help other tribes to settle the land. In fact, two and a half tribes didn't even cross over the Jordan to settle on that side. So they technically didn't even enter the promised land to settle it. Now, they entered to help some of the other tribes to get their land, but then when they were done kind of winning that land, they went back across the Jordan River and settled there. And so ultimately, you have two and a half tribes on one side, you have the remaining tribes on the other side, and they're all kind of settling in their different areas, and they're all kind of you know, figuring out you know, their different um, places according to what was prescribed um, for them. If you were a large tribe, it didn't necessarily mean you got the largest share of the land. And some of the land was hilly, some of it was uh, easier to farm, some of it was, you know, it was all very different. And so they were all settling, and it was over a period of time um, that they went in and took the land. So the book of Joshua tells us all about this, you know, them going in and conquering the land. Um, it tells us about the leadership of Joshua, but then also uh, towards the very, very end of the book of Joshua, we have a, a very important moment where the people once again, in a very formal way, recommit themselves to this covenant agreement, recommit themselves to God in a very formal way. And uh, you get a sense of, okay, this, this, this going in and taking the land is difficult. But there's hope because the people have recommitted themselves to God, and with God's strength they can do it. <clears throat> After Joshua dies, the next book that we see is the book of Judges. It follows right along. And the, the book of Judges continues this, the history of Israel as they settle Canaan. So Joshua really is about conquering the land and the struggle to conquer the land. And Judges is about the struggle to settle the land. And those are two, two slightly different things. So they conquer the land, they go in and they take it, but then they have to really settle into it and make the land their own, and really begin to work to figure out what it is to live before God in this new land. Because remember, they've been traveling for, for a generation in the wilderness, and now they've got to settle in one place, and they've got to figure out what does life look like when you settle, and when you begin to live that out. And the book of Judges is about that struggle for them to figure out what it was when they were settled in the land. The book of Judges really talks about a, a kind of a, an unstable time, because as they tried to settle, they find it very, very difficult. And I think, again, it's tempting as you read through quickly to, to think, oh, they went in and they settled and everything was real easy. And, um, you know, God was on their side, so that meant everything was easy. And uh, it, was, it was painless, and they were able to figure it out easily. And the reality is it was very difficult for them to work out how to do it. And they often compromised, and they didn't follow God in this stage of their history as fully as they might have. And there was a lot of um, difficulty as they were working out what it was to really settle this land. Over a period of, Judges 
Um, the book of Judges spans at least a couple of hundred years of history. And the judges themselves were, were not judges in the sense that we think of them as sitting in a courtroom and people would come to them. The judges were more like um, deliverers or national leaders that rose up for a particular time. And there's a cycle in the book of Judges that you see where the people are in distress and they're, they're you know, having a very, very difficult time. And they cry out to God for a deliverer, for a judge to come. So the judge would come and there'd be this great story of deliverance. Maybe they'd win a major battle or something would happen that would be this huge area of deliverance. And then the judge would die and then things would kind of, you know, deteriorate again and get to the point where they're crying out to God for a deliverer to come and another judge would rise up and God would send someone else to deliver the people and you just have the cycle that goes on and on. Some of the major judges that you might be familiar with from this time are people such as Deborah and Gideon and Samson. But the final verse in the book of Judges really sums up the situation in the land of, as Israel had, had settled in the land. And in that, Judges 21-25, it says, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. And that really sums up the book of Judges. It's kind of this period of instability. And the people by the end of Judges are saying, we really want a king. So Af, you, have the, uh, you have the prophet Samuel. Um, rise up and you see this in first Samuel second Samuel the very start you have Samuel comes up and starts his prophetic ministry and he's the one that bridges um, and helps the people transition uh, the nation into a monarchy so the leaders come to Samuel the prophet who's leading the nation and they say we really want a king all these other nations have a king and uh, you know we think that it'd just be better if we had a king. And so what they're hinting at is they want more stability, they want protection, they want there's all these you know all the trappings of having a monarchy, and they really want all of that because they want they think it'll help bring some national identity. And so in First Samuel eight, you see the people go to Samuel and say, "We want a king." Now God, when you are reading in the law, there's actually a provision in there where God says, "Don't have a king." He said, "I'm your king." You don't need a human king. If you have a human king, ultimately, he'll oppress you. He'll tax you. You know, he just goes through all these things that will happen that um, the people are warned against. But the people are kind of ignoring that part of the law. And they really kind of harass Samuel. And Samuel goes to God and said, what, what should I do? Should we establish a monarchy? Should they have a king? And God said, yes. He said, let them have a king. And so the kingdom, the kingdom starts, the monarchy starts, and the first king is Saul. He reigns for 42 years. Ultimately, his kingship was a failure. He did not follow um, the ways of God. After Saul, we have King David rises up, and he begins what's considered like the golden age, like the real, like just amazing time, like the most stable time for the history of Israel in the entire Old Testament. David captures Jerusalem. He establishes Jerusalem as the place where God will be worshipped and as the capital city for the nation of Israel. He strengthens the borders. He has these very incredible military campaigns. He's like just incredible period of of time for the nation of Israel. And so um, you have all of these amazing uh, stories of David. And they take up quite a section, you know, in the Old Testament history section because um, he's just such a, an incredible figure. Uh, he reigns for 40 years and then transitions the throne to his son, Solomon. Uh, 
And Solomon's major achievement was that he built the temple. This whole time up until this period, even through the time of David, the tabernacle that we saw built in Exodus, at the very end of Exodus, that tabernacle was still where God's presence was, and that was still the center of worship, even when they'd moved into, uh, into Jerusalem. And that was one of God's things about, he said to David, he said, you've built you know, this incredible palace for yourself, but I still live in a tent, essentially. And so Solomon... Um, built this, this temple for God, and it was glorious, and it was just this incredible place. And so that's really takes us through the, the kind of, it's called the United Kingdom stage, because it's this, it's this single kingdom, this single monarchy in the history of Israel. It's this glorious kind of age in the history of Israel. So we just want to, before we go a little bit further, just want to explain, this is where the prophets kind of come back in to this morning. So you kind of see this balance between the history and the prophets that we kind of are maintaining this morning. And history and the prophets really blend together. In general, a prophet was considered the mouth of God because the prophet would speak the words of God. In fact, sometimes um, in Hebrew, they wouldn't even use the word prophet. You know, they had a word for prophet, but sometimes they would just say the phrase, the mouth of God spoke. And so it's this idea that what the prophet says is what God is saying. So the prophets often arose in times of crisis, and they also came with messages that reflected whatever that crisis was that was going on in the nation. And so they would speak things such as spiritual advice. They would bring wise counsel and wisdom. They would bring rebuke or blessing. And they would also call for justice. And sometimes they would even give military advice. So we normally think of the prophets for us as the three major prophets. So that would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then the 12 minor prophets. And we think, oh, well, the minor prophets must not be as important because they're minor prophets. But really, they have that label more because of the length of the books themselves rather than what they say. And so the major prophets are considered major because they're so much longer. In fact, Jeremiah is... Uh, I think the longest book in the, in the Bible, when you count up all the words, you know, it's just a long book. Uh, Isaiah is the same. The role and the function of the prophets really developed and became a bit more formal as the nation of Israel progressed. So you have Moses was a prophet and he led the people. Well, when there was a king, the prophet no longer led the people, but the prophet became more of an advisor um, to the king. And as each crisis was happening and each prophet came they would address different people but often the prophet would address the king either in his presence or he would address the king maybe you know in the middle of the city he would proclaim against the king or whatever he would give advice to the king their messages were often shaped by uh, the lens that they kind of saw their message through was the lens of the of the covenant agreement of the law and so you have the sense of every generation and every crisis and everything that's happening they're framing the message through the law and so they kind of have this sense of you know there's injustice and you're not feeding the poor and you're not taking care of them and those the widows you're not helping them in fact you're oppressing them that's wrong because in the law it says that you should do that and this law is what you formally committed yourself to in relationship with God many generations ago your forefathers did it you need to do it as well and so you'll have this strong sense of the law and covenant coming through in the message of the prophets Okay, so let's jump back into the uh, history part. And so Solomon has uh, just passed away. So it's gone. The monarchy is established and it's gone. Saul, David, Solomon, the uh, nation of Israel is doing pretty well. And uh, Solomon, as you know, kind of famous in history for being very wise and very rich. And, uh, you know, the kingdom of Israel is doing really well. 
it very dramatically and very quickly splits into two. And so Solomon, when he dies, gives the kingdom to his son. And this this will sound confusing because these names are very similar. But his son Rehoboam gets the throne. And the people come to to him and they say, how are you going to reign? Are you going to reign basically wisely? Are you going to be harsh with us? So Rehoboam gets essentially his friends together. And he's pretty young and he gets his friends together. And he says, how should we reign over this nation? And they say, you have to basically prove yourself. You've got to really reign with an iron fist. You've got to be harsh. You've got to impose your, your rule. So he goes back and he tells the people and he said, I'm, you know, I'm going to really rule you harshly. And 10 of the 12 tribes said, no, we will not have you as king if that's how you're going to reign. And so 10 of the 12 tribes uh, basically broke away from the nation of Israel and they formed the northern kingdom and that's called the northern kingdom of Israel. Two tribes, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, stay, um, they, uh, they stayed with Rehoboam, but then those northern ones ended up going with another guy called Jeroboam. So you can see where it gets confusing. So you have Rehoboam in the south, and then you have Jeroboam in the north. Now, Jeroboam was not a son of Solomon. He actually was an advisor to Solomon who had rebelled against him when Solomon was still king, and then he had had to flee to Egypt. When he heard that Solomon had died, he came back because he saw his moment to get back into some form of authority um, over the people. And so he seized his moment. So Jeroboam ends up king of, the, uh, king of uh, Israel in the north, the ten tribes. Rehoboam ends up in the south with the two tribes. And so if you're ever reading in the Old Testament, and you're like, this is really confusing that there's lots of kings. Like when so-and-so is king of Israel, why is this other guy king of Judah? And it's because you have the two kingdoms. And the other thing that happens then is some of the, there's different things and different issues that come up in different stages in each of the two kingdoms. And some prophets were entirely, you'll see that the prophets were entirely in the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, typically. So, um, so you'll have some prophets that they don't even address the issues that happened in Judah because they're entirely dealing with the issues that are happening in the kingdom of Israel. So it can get a little confusing, and you, you know, the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, really outlines all of the different monarchies and everything that happens as you go through. So what we'll do is we'll look uh, really, um, we'll look really briefly at the uh, kingdom of Israel, and then we'll look briefly at the kingdom of Judah, and we'll kind of talk about what prophets were in each one. Um, we'll just pick out one prophet from Israel, one from Judah, just as an example of how they kind of fitted in to uh, the life of Israel. And then uh, it'll kind of give you an idea. So we don't have time to do all of the prophets, but we have enough time for you to see how they kind of fit into the life of Israel and what they did and their role and to give you kind of an example. So that then when you're reading through the Old Testament and you're reading some of those other prophets, you know, that we don't deal with in more detail today, you'll get a sense of, well, at least I know generally uh, what they did. So Jeroboam... um, is king over the northern kingdom of Israel. And so one of the first things he did is he had to find a capital city because the southern, the southern kingdom of Judah retained Jerusalem. And so the first thing Jeroboam has to do is start a capital city. And so he does that, and he makes his capital city Shechem, and he makes that capital city strong. And the northern kingdom had three capital cities during its history. It had capital cities in Shechem, Tirza, and Samaria. The other thing that Jeroboam did pretty much right away is he thought to himself, 
you know, under the law and under how we live as a nation or how we have done, people are supposed to travel to Jerusalem three times a year to sacrifice and to take part in the festivals. And he thought, that's a problem because all of my people are going to go and they're going to go down to Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah and they're going to worship. And he's like, I can't have my entire people going down to that southern kingdom three times a year. He said, I need to have somewhere else where they can go to worship. And so this will sound familiar, but they build two golden calves and they build one in the very north of the country and they build one at the very south of the country. And the one in the north was at a place called Dan and the one in the south is at a place called Bethel. And these were historically very significant places. When you read early in Genesis, Bethel is called the house of God. That's what it means. And that's a very key, key point. So he was kind of strategic in doing that. But essentially what he did is he built a rival religious system to the one that they'd experienced in Jerusalem. And so people then began to worship these um, golden calves. This, uh, this set up a, a kind of a pattern in the northern kingdom. And there's actually a summary in 2 Kings 17 that talks through kind of the story of Israel as a whole. So this is kind of a summary from uh, 2 Kings 17. The Israelites, those in the northern kingdom, they refused to listen to the prophets and uh, they rebelled just like their forefathers had against God. This rebellion manifested itself as a lack of confidence in Yahweh, their God. And so I'm just kind of summarizing what's in the content of 2 Kings 17. The Israelites deliberately rejected the covenant God had made with them. They disregarded the warnings God had given them. They chose to follow idols. And it's described that they followed idols that were vain and worthless. And then in turn, they became vain and worthless themselves. Like the idea of you become what you worship. And over generations, um, that was kind of the pattern that happened. They imitated the nations around them. Do you remember they said, give us, you know, give us a king. And then that began to manifest itself in how they worshipped and how they lived their lives. They uh, rejected all of God's commandments. They made two golden calves and they worshipped them in Dan and Bethel. In Samaria, the capital city, they set up a pole that symbolized the Canaanite fertility goddess, Asherah. They worshipped the planets and stars, and they also practiced astrology. They worshipped Baal, the fertility god of the Near East. They followed the brutal practice of offering their children as human sacrifices. They practiced witchcraft and sorcery. And in doing all of this, the Israelites sold themselves to sin and provoked the Lord to anger. And in all of these things, the Israelites disobeyed the specific commands in the law of God. So that's kind of a, a summary in Second uh, Kings uh, 17. It comes right at the end of the history of Israel. The reality is that um, Israel in 722 BC was, was invaded by the Assyrians and the people and the, really the, the kingdom of Israel ceased to exist. So let me give you an example of some of the prophets that were in Israel that were trying to speak into this situation. You have some of them are Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, Amos, and Hosea. So let's look at, at Amos really quick. Amos actually was from the southern kingdom of Judah. He, lived, uh, he was actually a farmer, and he lived just below, just south of Jerusalem. And God said, I want you to go to the northern kingdom of Israel, and I want you to speak against the things that are happening. And he is um, prophesying about 30, 40 years before the collapse of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he goes up during the reign of King Jeroboam II. 
And it was a time of real political and military prosperity in Israel. It was before the collapse of the kingdom. And um, they were doing well in those ways, politically and militarily. But uh, morally, they weren't doing very well at all. They were very corrupt. They were, there was a lot of social injustice. Um, there was a lot of idolatry. And the poor were being oppressed. And so Amos, you know, comes after the time when Elisha and Jonah have prophesied. And Elisha had prophesied prosperity to Israel. And so they were kind of in a time of prosperity in one sense. And so they kind of thought, yeah, we're all right, because Elisha said this would happen, and here we are. You know, everything is good. But Amos comes and he says, actually, um, there's a judgment coming, and you need to turn away now, or else it's going to come for sure. And so he really begins to speak against everything that's happening. And he says, there's a judgment coming. He reinforces his words by recounting five visions that he had that helped to uh, reinforce his message. And the most famous is the vision of the plumb line where he's measured you and things like that. And so you see this descriptive image. So the kingdom of Israel falls, 722 B.C. Kingdom of Judah lasts about 150 years longer. Kingdom of Judah... Uh, Rehoboam had taken that that kingdom. It's uh, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And uh, he retained the capital city of Jerusalem and also the temple. Uh, There's a lot of, um, you know, the kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, there was a lot of turmoil and uncertainty as each king would rise up. There was a lot of assassinations and, you know, kings would rule for short periods of time and there was instability. In Judah, it was a little bit more stable because God had promised to King David that there would be someone from his line that would continue to rule on the throne of Judah. And so that's the pattern that you see. But in many ways, it's the same story in Judah as in Israel. They worshipped false gods. They didn't live up to the commandments. And they really struggled to follow the law of God. And ultimately, in 586, the Babylonians this time came in, and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple, and they overtook the kingdom of Judah. Unlike in the northern kingdom, where um, there was no kind of group or remnant that were saved, in Judah, there was a group that was rescued or a group that was saved. So we'll talk about that in just one moment. Prophets in Judah uh, were Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk. And uh, let's look at um, Jeremiah very quickly. He prophesied at the very, very end of the kingdom of Judah. He actually witnessed the fall of Judah and uh, Jerusalem. And again, he came in and he tried to uh, tried to warn the people. The prophets will give you snapshots into the life of how people thought at the time. So one thing that Jeremiah speaks against is he says, you know, you people in Judah, you think you're better than Israel. Like you saw Israel be destroyed, but you think you're better because you have God's presence in the temple at Jerusalem. And he said, you kind of use the fact that God's presence is in the temple at Jerusalem like a good luck charm. And you say, that will, def- that will defend me. You know, it doesn't matter what happens because God's presence is in Jerusalem and ultimately we'll be okay. And so Jeremiah said, you know, you guys have that wrong. Uh, You know, God's presence will not protect you if you aren't living in obedience to him. And he said, you know, God's presence, he can live anywhere. He doesn't have to live in Jerusalem. He can really live anywhere. And so um, you get these snapshots into how people thought, you know, and kind of what the culture was saying at the time. So, 586, the Babylonians come in under King Nebuchadnezzar. That name's probably familiar. And he comes in and he destroys the temple and destroys the city. And he doesn't, you know, destroy everyone, but he actually takes 10,000 people 
from Jerusalem and brings them into captivity in the city of Babylon. And those 10,000 become the exiles or the remnant of Judah. And during this time, they um, are, in the, are in captivity and they spend 70 years in captivity in Babylon before God ultimately brings them back. So next week, we'll look at that restoration under Ezra and Nehemiah. But uh, one prophet really stands out in this time, and that's the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel started prophesying before the fall of Jerusalem. He was in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he said it's going to happen, and then he saw it happen. And he was actually part of the 10,000 that went from Jerusalem to Babylon. And he's prophesying this whole time. And Ezekiel has lots of amazing and incredible visions. But really, his book is in three sections. First 24 chapters, the warning to Jerusalem. This is going to come. This is going to come. You need to change your ways. If you change your, you know, you need to change your ways or else God is going to, you know, uh, come in and you, you'll be destroyed. Chapters 25 to 32. This is after the fall of Jerusalem. He actually, and this is another interesting thing the prophets do, they wouldn't just prophesy to kings in Israel or Judah or to the Israelites or, or the, uh, those in Judah him, themselves. He would also prophesy to other nations. And sometimes you see that as like, oh, you know, woe to you, Moab, or some of those other things. And you're like, what is he doing there? He's actually speaking to the other nations because God is using all of these nations to accomplish his plans and purposes. And uh, Ezekiel does that. So the walls have fallen. People are in captivity. And Ezekiel said, okay, all of you other nations, you either help this happen or you turn a blind eye, blind eye and now you're rejoicing. He said, don't rejoice too hard because remember God is in control and you never know what might happen to you. And then the last section of the book, he kind of, Ezekiel instills hope that there will be a restoration and we get this incredible vision of the temple being rebuilt. So what was the role of the prophets, if we can sum it up? First of all, they speak God's words, and they provided many opportunities for the nations to repent. A couple of things that we really see. One, I think we're familiar with this idea that the people couldn't live up to the law. They just find it so impossibly difficult to live up to the law. But what this period tells us and what the prophets tell us is that not only did the people try and not be able to live up to the law, but they also purposefully chose to live against God. And so it's not just that they tried and failed. It's that they actually willfully went against God. And you see that in generation after generation where they actually willfully chose to live against God and his law. But in the midst of all of this, you finally see God is faithful. And the faithfulness of God, even in the midst of judgment, it comes through over and over again in the prophets. And it's incredible how much grace is in there and how much God really tries with his people. And there's just these incredible seeds of promise that are in the prophets that um, we'll begin to look at a little bit more next week. So next week, the people, as we've left them, they're, they're in captivity in Babylon. Next week, we'll have them come back to Jerusalem and rebuild under Ezra and Nehemiah. And then we'll look at the final section of, uh, of the writings in the Old Testament. And that's a lot of the books that we've not covered so far. And then we'll also see that there's a period of silence between the Old and New Testament and this ante- anticipation of the Messiah to come. All right. Thanks. Over to Marilee. Thank you, Graham. That's great. Well, I have some announcements for you. Um, if you are new with us and you've never turned your connection card into the connection counter,